Listener Production. Ultimately, I believe we are all in the business of emotion. If we truly want to influence our organisations, human beings, our team, etc., we must realise that human beings are emotional creatures. So it's one thing informing through data, it's a whole other thing about evoking emotion through story. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. To lead is to bring confidence to the people you lead, the customers who buy your services and those who buy your products. But as my next guest points out in his latest book, People Follow People, many of us have lost confidence in the brands and the companies and the leaders around us. My guest, Sam Cawthorn, knows leadership isn't just about flashy smiles and charisma. He says people follow other people who have 12 specific characteristics. In this episode, we'll find out some of these characteristics and we're also going to explore Sam's journey and how his life was changed forever when he was involved in a major car accident. Now, Sam is an international speaker in high demand. He's an author and he's a successful business owner. Welcome to Fast Track, Sam. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Now, let's start with your latest book. What prompted you to write a book called People Follow People? It seems fairly obvious. (laughs) Look, it was a few years ago. uh, I had these two massive big speaking engagements. One was for the United Nations, uh, around 4,000 people in the audience. And the other one was for a YouTuber, about 8,000 people in the audience. And it was really interesting. So so the first gig I did for the UN and, the, you know, they were so curious about how they can make more of a positive difference to humanity, how they can serve, contribute, add value, lift up, etc. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Two days later... I then spoke at this event for, let's call him like a bit of a punk YouTuber. And it was quite unfortunate because when I first walked in the door, there was this real thick, uh, heavy atmosphere that I noticed. And obviously, you know, when you speak on stage, when you're involved in experiences, you, you notice a shift of energy. And the energy was all about how you can get as much from humanity, how you can get as much money as you can. And it was a very sort of self-centered environment. And, you know, now fast forward 18 months later, this same YouTuber is a bit of a nobody. And it really made me think, because I've now been in personal development now for, you know, 16, 17 years, and I've seen patterns of people that have a level of longevity when it does come to influencing or leading others and people that don't have that longevity. And what is the difference? And what does it take to be an influencer worth following that people trust and like over a long period of time? And so I, I've looked at these patterns. I've then looked at some of the latest research when it does come to why people follow people. And ultimately, this book was birthed from that moment. It's a great introduction, a fantastic story. And that longevity of a leader is something that we're all curious about. What's the current state of leadership in the world for you? I've got a very strong opinion about this, but I want to know from you, the expert, what's missing? What do we crave from our leaders? Yeah, look, look. ultimately, trust is still a really big thing. And even through crisis of what we have seen, you know, over the last close to 18 months, 
Trust is still a huge thing. Are the people that we follow, the organizations that we buy from, the leaders that we look up to, are they someone that we can trust? Are they someone that we can like? Are they someone that we aspire to be like? And ultimately, what what we're now looking for, and we're currently searching for people that are incongruent, people that, you know, maybe say one thing but might do something else. And so at the moment, you know, uh, particularly here in Australia, and excuse the pun, we have big bullshit meters. We can spot a fraud a mile away. So at the moment, you know, the transparency, congruency, are those people that say something, but also then follow through with that. These are the type of leaders now that we're just leaning into and the people that we obviously trust as well. Are we super clear about what a spin doctor is and does with leadership? Do you think if you think we've got that good bullshit To be quite honest, nowadays, what we're now seeing is people really mistrust a lot of politicians because obviously they say one thing, you know, leading up to an election. And then once they're now in, then unfortunately, then a lot of those promises go along the wayside. So ultimately, that's how most people look at when we first grow up. And then we then look through that lens at our bosses, even parents that have now lost our trust. We look through that lens as well. So at the moment, there's a lot of skepticism out there. There's a lot of research now that says it takes a long time to build trust, but it's just simply at the flick of a switch when you actually lose that trust. And so the transparency, congruency is something that has to have a level of longevity to it. Yeah, really interesting. I spoke to an Uber driver, this is my qualitative research overload, who said that she was going back to New Zealand from Australia because of Jacinda Ardern. And she said the hope in the street was palpable, that people felt hopeful of their future for the environment, for each other. And she said, you can feel it. Just like you said, you could feel in the room that heaviness around the YouTuber. So I'll be curious to talk to you in the future and see how this emerges. Absolutely. So Sam, what is at the heart of leadership for you, in your opinion? You mentioned trust before, is that it? Yeah, it is It is both trust, but also there are so many various elements that fit underneath that word and underneath that terminology. The very first thing that comes to my mind of someone worth following is even as simple as my father. My father, he was a farmer. And one thing I notice about him, he set boundaries. And if we ever moved outside of those boundaries, then there will be consequences. And he always followed through with those consequences. And so for me, building trust with my father over a long period of time was certainly something that I massively respected in him. Sometimes I didn't uh, necessarily agree with what he was doing, but that didn't necessarily mean that I didn't trust him. And so nowadays I look through that lens, even at my previous bosses when I was working for someone else. And I'm also now looking at politicians, I'm looking at business leaders and all the way through to, you know, that certain profile in the marketplace. I believe we're actually on a real interesting verge and a real interesting crossroads in society right now where we are no longer trusting brands, companies, logos, organisations, even media and governments. We're now moving towards individual profile. I like to call it the profile economy. 
And so suddenly when we think of Tesla, we think of Elon. When we think of Virgin, we think of Richard. When we think of Apple, we think of Steve. And so suddenly now there's a face behind a company. There's a face behind a brand. There's a face behind a organization. And so in this new profile economy, it is about now how can we build our own profile within the organization that we like and trust. Oh, wow. That's so interesting because there has been an anti-profile movement there for a while. You had to build your business and de-risk it from the personality. So I do find that really interesting about the profile economy, as you call it. Yeah, it's very, very true. And ultimately, this is really the foundation of a big part of why I did write this book, because people follow people. We follow human beings, not brands, not companies, not logos. And it's really interesting as well. Let's say hypothetically, if you have the greatest product or services on the planet, the best, but if you don't like the human being that sells it to you, you're not going to take out your wallet. But let's just say hypothetically, let's say you've got a pretty good product and services. It's not the best on the planet, but it is still pretty good. If I really like that human being that's selling or behind that, I'm going to take out my wallet and buy it. So the bottom line is, yes, product services and the professionalism of how that's done is super important, but it will certainly not trump the human being or the profile that represents that. Wow. So that leads us really into this idea of the themes in your book. You've already noted that it's around likability almost. Yeah, look, absolutely. Look, one of my very first chapters in this book is called Character Before Charisma. You know, sometimes you walk into a room or you might see a leader or a boss or a politician and they've got this amazing charisma to them, you know, they're mesmerizing, they've got the perfect smile, they've got the great handshake, their shoulders are back, they've got the perfectly tailored suit, etc. But the reality is, just because they have amazing charisma, do they also have the character to back that up, morals, integrity, core values, ethics, truth? And so for me... Whenever I'm hiring staff, you know, I've got a team of 90 people and whenever I'm particularly hiring my managers, my leaders, even now I'm hiring CEOs, I look at their character before their skill. I look at their values before their charisma. And if their values and their character are in alignment with mine, then I'm going to hire that. You know, they, they say hire an attitude training school. I say hire a character. It's a pretty interesting thing to say, observe someone and find out their character, their true character. Are they lying? Are they being manipulative? Are they pretending to have the flashy smile and the charisma? But how do we know, Sam? Yeah, so I've, I've got a, a sort of rule book that I look at this. And again, it's my personal bias opinion. But how I look at it, I look at how many long-term relationships have they had in their life. I look at how many things have they actually had grit and determination to push through, even through tough times. What are the patterns? So how many jobs have they actually had throughout their career? If they, if they're actually got different jobs every six, 12 months, or if they've been through multiple relationships in their life, if they've, you know, multiple divorces or whatever it might be. And, and look, again, this is my own personal bias opinion, but I certainly look at that and that would actually sway my opinion. And so I love those people that actually still have long-term relationships in their life, that have actually showed a level of 
you know, integrity and longevity about them towards different decisions that they made in their life. You know, the word decision comes from the Latin word desire, you know, incision. Cision means to cut, you know, decision. Cision means to cut. And the word decide, you know, suicide, pesticide. The word side means to kill. So get this, the word decision means to cut off and kill. And I believe the world lacks leaders that make decisions. Why? Because we love keeping our options open. We like sitting on the fence. But I certainly look for those people that actually make decisions in their life when they cut off and kill every other option. And so for me, even in my own personal life, I don't have a plan B or a plan C because it distracts from plan A. And so I started my first business and 16 years later, I'm still in the same business. And so for me, I've made a decision and I'm going to follow through with that. So it sounds like commitment for me. If I was listening to this and I was hearing, you know, make the decisions, commit to the path. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have your highs and your lows, you have your downturn, you have your, your frustrations and the grass always looks greener on the other side. But for me, character is very much so based on a commitment. What sorts of self-awareness tips do you have for a leader to capture the hearts and minds of their people? You mentioned that one is character over charisma. I do love that. Is there anything else in the book that you can help us understand? Yeah, so so there's a couple more as well. I've also got another one in there, which is actually a story before data. At the moment, you know, there, there was a terminology that we heard around five years ago, which was, you know, data is the new oil. You know, it's all about, you know, how can you actually really measure your your data? How can we, you know, bring in AI in order for us to really understand our numbers, et cetera? And I still think that's super important. And, you know, we've seen phenomenal growth in many of our businesses, and that is because we actually do measure the data and see what's working, see what doesn't, et cetera. However, ultimately, I believe we are all in the business of emotion. If we truly want to influence our organizations, human beings, our team, et cetera, Data and information and logic is one thing. Whereas if you really want to get them across the line, if you really want to truly influence them, we must realize that human beings are emotional creatures. We must have a deeper understanding of our emotional intelligence. So it's one thing informing through data. It's a whole other thing about evoking emotion through story. And so story is going to be a big fundamental part of you being a leader worth following. How are you navigating through the story of your customers, your clients, whenever you're speaking, whenever you're communicating? How can you truly influence them by actually incorporating, you know, a a sense of narrative or a story in order to get someone across the line, whether it's your boss, whether it's your client, your customer? So for me, I, I truly believe we all need to be storytellers. We all need to learn how to share really powerful stories to evoke that emotion. Data is one thing, story is a whole another level. If you want to influence, win people's attention, it is more about story. Which is a perfect segue for me to talk about you and your story. You've made your name both as a leader, having won more awards than I can mention here, but from Young Tasmanian of the Year in 2006 to Telstra Business Awards, And you've published eight books as an author, and now you run a successful Speakers Institute. What happened to you before all of this, Sam? 
Can you share the story of Sam Cawthorn? Yeah, so I'm originally from Tassie, mum's Indian, father's Scottish, big family, family of 11, ridiculous. That's oh, what where happens are you? Down in Tassie. Which number? <laughs> Zero to uh, I'm one? I'm number nine. T- number nine of I, 11. I, I think I'm an uncle like 40 times. Wow. Uh, which wow. is awesome. But, uh, you know, I was one of these, you know, ADHD type kids, just had so much energy all the time. Yet at the same time, I was quite shy and I mixed with the wrong kids at school And I found myself doing things that I shouldn't have been doing and I got kicked out of school. But it was really interesting. I then managed to pick myself up, got a great government job. And I was driving one day in my big company car, big V8 Statesman, and I fell asleep uh, behind the wheel. I was about three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, The police said it was a 206 kilometre head-on collision with a semi-trailer truck. So, yeah, it it, it uh, it was my fault. Uh, I fell asleep. Massive car accident on life support for a week, uh, hospital for five months, in a wheelchair for a year. Doctor said I'll never be able to walk ever again. And uh, my right arm, my most dominant arm, was amputated. So I now live with a significant disability. I've only got one arm. I've only got one good leg. Uh, my other leg doesn't work, though I am standing today, which is awesome. There's, there's no greater feeling when you can prove the doctor's wrong. Mm. How old were you when this happened, Sam? Uh, I was 26. Uh, I had two kids and, um, yeah, so it was October the 3rd, 2006. Wow. I'm so sorry. That's just such a devastating experience for anyone in so many ways. Yet here you sit and stand before me. So successful. So did that change everything for you? Is that why you sort of shifted career and began winning awards? Where was the bridge between being told you couldn't walk again, being in a wheelchair, losing your right arm, and then deciding that you were going to do more. Yeah, look, I um, I do know that a lot of people through massive car accident tragedies, they're actually no longer here. So they actually pass away. And, and you know, I've heard so many stories about that. So for me, number one is that I'm super grateful I'm still here, I'm still alive, I'm still a father, I'm still a husband. And so for me, my gratitude is so deep, so deep in fact, that I've never went through any, you know, depression or anxiety or, or you know, over-the-top stress at all after my accident. And it's mainly because I've programmed myself to just be so grateful I'm alive. And that's super awesome, yeah? And so very, very simplistic foundation of my mindset. And so with that as a foundation, you know, my rehabilitation team, they tried to get me back to that same job, back to that same environment, but something had changed, you know, not only uh, physically, but also emotionally, mentally, uh, spiritually. And so for me, I was, uh, I didn't really want to go back to that same job of working for the government. And at the time I was working as a youth futurist for the Department of Education, Employment, Workplace cool Relations. Cool job, right? Yeah, I know. It's a cool job. Exactly right. Actually, they say you can't get a government job without a university degree. Actually, you can. <laughs> I, I was a high school dropout. Seriously, it's quite interesting. I failed English, but I've written, you know, multiple books. international best-selling <laughs> books. I, I never sat an exam before in my life. I never finished high school. Uh, you know, it's the typical entrepreneur story, if you ask me. So, um, yeah, so a local youth group asked me to share my story. I just went and shared my story about me overcoming a car accident. And then another school asked me to share my story, then another school, and I thought, wow, man, this is really cool. Maybe I should start charging. <laughs> so I was charging 500 bucks for a school for me to go in just to share my story. And I realised 
schools were paying it. I was doing like 10 schools a week at one stage there, yet two a day. So I thought, man, maybe I could go into corporate. And so I decided to charge, you know, literally a thousand times that in a corporate, like five grand to share my story to Commonwealth Bank and they were paying it. I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. And so, yeah, it was very organic how I started professional speaking. And yeah, I suppose the rest is history. I've now shared the stage with Michelle Obama, with Simon Sinek, with Michael Jordan, with Dalai Lama. I've shared my story in over 40 countries live, uh, in over 120 countries online. And yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very, it was very organic and I didn't even know about this industry. But people follow people and people listen to stories and people are influenced and this very story that you're telling about the hearts and minds that you've captured of others and I've been in the audience and heard you speak and been completely uplifted and moved and inspired in a meaningful way, in a congruent way. And so I'm just really grateful that you've felt like you could share some more for all of us and also now to share the art of storytelling, which is a fundamental part of who you are. But what tips do you have for our listeners about developing the art of storytelling while being authentic and not sounding like they've just stepped out of a course and become a storytelling robot? Look, number one is, is I believe everyone has a story. And what we sometimes do, we compare our stories with other people's stories and we think, oh, look, Sam, your story is better than my story. I have a boring story. But for me, I feel that it's not necessarily about the story of what you say. The story is more about how you say it. You know, you, you can get a top-tier story of an Olympian or someone, you know, who's a big hotshot celebrity, but they could share that story in a way that makes you really bored in five minutes. But then you get another person who might just share about a story about going down to the local supermarket and back, but that story is like an edge-of-the-seat thriller. <laughs> So, so it's not about the content, what you say. It's about the method, how you say it. And as we were saying earlier on, I believe everyone has a story and I believe we need to start sharing that story in a more powerful way. One of my previous books is actually called Story Showing, how to stand out from the storytellers. And basically it gives the whole concept that whenever we're sharing a story, we can't just tell it, you know, th from an audio point of view. If we're in front of them visually, and even through the camera, we need to show that story. So even as I'm talking to you now, Margie, I'm using my hands, I'm using my gestures, I'm using my eyes, and I believe we need to show the story rather than just tell the story. And the more that we learn some of the skills in around sharing a story, the more that we will move from head to head, more heart to heart, the more that we can learn how to evoke emotion so you can emotionally connect with another emotional human being. And ultimately, that's how we influence them and also how we win their attention. And ultimately, everyone's fighting for everyone else's attention. And so for me, it's about learning the methodology of story, not just the content of story. My last question's going to be, what would you say is the core to leadership in the next decade? What can you leave us with insights around what we need to be watching out for in our future? Yeah, I do say a saying that it's our decision, not our condition, that determines who we are. 
And throughout the pandemic, one thing I did see is that the leaders that were quite optimistic, the leaders that brought hope, the leaders that brought enlightenment, these were the leaders that we're leaning into. Why? Because everything that I saw with a lot of media was very doom and gloom. It was dark. It was fear-based. But the leaders that we were clicking on, that we were leaning into, were the leaders that were actually bringing hope and light into the world. And so for me, you know, we, we discovered earlier on what the word decision is. And so for me, it is our decision, not our condition that determines who we are. We're going to have a lot more conditions in the future. We're going to have downturns. We're going to have crises. We're going to hit rock bottom in our personal, professional life. We're going to have a lot of tough times. And I believe that the more that we realize that it is our decision, if we make a decision that there is always hope, that there's always light at the end of the tunnel, if we can actually inspire and transform and motivate and lift up and rise, the more that our team will follow that as well. So we are drawn to light. We look for light. And so if you can be light, uh, these are the people that we lean into. And on that note, I couldn't think of a more positive, uplifting way to end. Sam Cawthorne, thank you so much for being on Fast Track with me today. Thanks for having me. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.